Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. It's in the future, so a lot of really good stuff going on. And as Pastor Dylan said, we closed on the Dream Center across the street, which is going to bring hope to our community as well. So a lot of really good stuff going on here at Chapel. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 12. As we continue our four questions series, today I'm going to share my story and how questions led me away from truth rather than to truth. Next week we're going to talk about destiny, what happens after I die, about heaven and hell, kind of dig into the theology of that. And then the first week of May, I'm going to need your help. We're doing a, a kind of a Q&A called You Asked For It. So next week we have some cards. You can fill out questions that you want to have answered here from the, in the service, from the stage. But also you can text those in as well because we believe that church should be a place questions should be asked because we hold the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you have questions, many times those questions will lead you to greater truth. John chapter 12, verse 24 through 26. If you would stand as we read together, as we normally do, and everybody hates doing it. Stretch, stretch them legs out. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For whoever loses his life and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There is power in a seed. Touch your neighbor and say, there's power in a seed. A seed looks small, but it contains a whole lot of potential. Jesus was one seed that was planted in the ground that contained enough potential for all of us to experience eternal life through his life and through his death. There is potential in a seed for dreams and hopes and purposes and for joy and for peace. There's power in a seed, but a seed is only powerful if you let it die. And many of us would just have the seed and never experience the potential. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are a seed giving, a seed sowing, and a seed harvesting God. And we thank you this morning that, Father, you planted the greatest seed of all, your own son, in the ground, in the dirt of this earth to produce an eternal harvest that we get to be part of. And so, Father, I pray that you awaken us this morning. Father, as I open up the recesses of my heart, I pray as people can see deep into my life, I pray they don't see shame or guilt, they see renewal and transformation. I pray they see the recesses of your heart and the depths of your mercy, the depths of your grace, and the depths of your glory through this message. And so, Father, we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I don't know your church experience. I didn't grow up in church, so every Easter since I've been in ministry has been new to me pretty much, but I'm gonna share my story and my testimony. And the reason for that is I believe that your story has power. I believe that you, when you share your story of how God rescued you and saved you, how he chased you down, how he changed your life, I believe it has power, one, for you, because it encourages your faith and strengthens you in who you are now, but it also is the greatest apologetic of the world. People can argue with the Bible, they can argue with your theology, they can argue with your opinions, but they can't argue with your story. It is your story. And it is true, it is real, and it shows and displays the power of God in your life. And so my, my, my dream today, my prayer today, is that you can connect with my story. And it will challenge you, but it will also awaken you to the reality that God is active, he is present, and he is here this morning. So I didn't grow up in church like, we never went to church for Easter. I never got the Easter clothes for Easter. We got Easter baskets or whatever. We were a very secular family. Like, no one in my family had ever been to church. Now, my grandparents, now my aunts, now my uncles, no one went to church. My family, if you'd ask them, would say, we were in the 70s and 80s world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like, that was my life. My dad had the, the permed mullet back in the day. Like, he was fresh when skinny jeans were cool. He wore skinny jeans before they were cool back in the early 80s with his perm. And so our household was pretty much that. Like, alcohol ran freely. Like, so much so, I remember the dog, we'd feed the dog, and every once in a while they'd pour some bush light beer into the dog's bowl, let him get a little tipsy. Like, that was our life. 
like playing Legos and you pull my Legos out of the crown roll bag. Like that was life for us. Anytime I walked in the house, there'd be ashtrays with Marlboro Reds, Virginia Slims, and also cigarette butts and roaches. If you don't know what roaches are, you can't call Cook's Pest Control for these roaches. They don't run, but they do move. And so there'd be roaches and a little bag of weed and, and J.O.B. 1.5s, which are rolling papers. Like that was our life. And a little later on in life, my dad would come home from work and I was excited to see my dad. And I asked my mom, I was like, hey, where's dad going? He'd go from the driveway to like the corner of the yard. And I was like, what's he doing? She's like, he's checking on his plants. My dad is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Farmer and gardener were nowhere in there. I'm like, we don't have a garden. And so when I got older, I'm like, oh, the plants. And so my parents would literally take us to parties, and we'd have to play in the back room. We'd play with the other kids, and my parents would have these big, huge parties in the living room and kitchen and all these things. And so that was my life. It was normal to me, so much so that I was 9 or 10 years old. I watched my dad roll up weed all the time and smoke weed that I thought I can do that. So I had a little post-it note from the house and some kids from the neighborhood. My dad had mowed the yard the day before, and I picked up some of those grass clippings and put them in that post-it note, and I started rolling that thing up. And I lit it. What I didn't know is if you don't roll it tight, it sucks in a lot of fire down your throat. And I burnt the daylights out of my lungs. But I thought I was cool. So much so that drinking, I tasted beer, I tasted liquor. Everything that they had, I partook of because it was normal. Like, it wasn't wrong. Words that other people thought were cuss words were normal words to me. People at school and basketball had to teach me, we don't say that around here. It, it was normal circumstance. And with that came all the other things that kind of fall around parties. So my mom was a heavy alcoholic. My dad's vice was more the weed. My mom used the alcohol to kind of cover her insecurities, her pain of her past and her worries and her fears. And she kind of used that and she would push that kind of off on me. So I had a younger brother, younger sister. And my younger brother, my younger sister, my mom would build up. You're awesome. You're beautiful. You're great. You're this. But for me, it was always tearing down. Like, you're terrible. You're not going to be anything when you grow up. Why can't you do better? Why can't you look like this kid? Why can't you play like him? Why can't you do your hair like him? And it was constantly like tearing down, tearing down, tearing down, tearing down. And every time I would hear it, I would smell the alcohol. So it's, like, it's crazy how our memories connect with other senses. And so like for my dad, he'd come home, our, our memories were around basketball. And when I, he'd come home from work, his jeans, his, his work boots, his shirt off. And it would be kind of a mixture of Weed smoke, cigarette smoke, and must as we play basketball. So now when I smell those smells, I think of playing basketball with my dad. But in the same way, when I walk through a restaurant that has a bar area or alcohol there, and I smell that sniff of kind of stale alcohol, I remember my mom's voice. And her voice, it may say, I love you, but right after that, it's you're not good enough. And I remember laying in bed at night and I would cry and weep. And I remember I had a picture of one of my grandfathers. I would just go to bed with at night because I thought he was the only one in the world that loved me. I remember I'd cry. And here's what my mom would say, tell me. She, you know the song about the worms? I can't remember how it goes. Cry me a river, go eat some worms, whatever it was. Like she would say that to me when I was crying. I'm like, I don't want to eat worms. I want somebody to love me. Why can't you love me? Why, why can't you just like me for me? And what I didn't realize was she was taking her pain and pushing it off on me because when pain is not transformed, it is transferred. Listen to me. When pain is not transformed, it is always transferred. When you don't transform the pain of your life, you will place it on somebody else, whether it's your kids, your spouse, people around you. Untransformed pain is always transferred pain. And I realized now that she was transferring her pain on me and I was living in this life where it was complete catastrophe and no hope and all death. <laughs> it was crazy. I was telling first service that like a couple years ago, we were at the house, my phone rang and my mom called me. So I feel like I'm a person of honor. If a mom calls me, my dad or Toya, I try to answer the phone and we're about to eat family dinner and she calls, I pick up the phone and say, hey, and she's weeping. <gasps> so my mom's a little dramatic. So I was like, you know, what, what's up? She's like, I just watched this movie. And I'm like, and? I'm trying to eat like some spaghetti right now. Can, what's the movie? Well, is the movie Precious? And, and in the movie, she gives her kid up for adoption and she's just crying through this whole thing. I'm like, okay, so what? She's like, I just need to tell you something. So kind of the tears kind of stop. It gets a really dramatic pause for a minute. And I'm like, okay. She says, when I was pregnant with you, 
My mom and her neighbor worked out a deal for me to sell you to the neighbor for $500. I was like, excuse me? Like, like what, what, what'd you say? She's like, I, you know, I, I didn't do it. I'm like, well, obviously you didn't do it. I'm here. <laughs> like, she's like, but I, I, was, I, was, I was tempted to do it, and it was $500, and I'm thinking. I told Toy, I was like, I get on the phone, I sit down to eat dinner, and Toy's like, who was that? And I was like, it was my mom. And she said, what's she saying? I was like, you may need to wait till after dinner. And I told her, I said, she told me she thought about selling me to the neighbor for $500. And Toy starts like, does that hurt you? I said, I don't know what's worse that she thought about selling me or I'm only worth $500. (laughs) And I told her, I'll give her $500 now, just leave me alone. Like, here's five, just leave me alone. But that was my life, this constant tension of not good enough and good enough and no and yes. And all these worlds could collide. And at six years old, in this environment of this constant turmoil, arguing and fighting and all these drugs and alcohol, all these situations going on, Somehow we wound up at a little Baptist church when I was six years old. I remember it was a basketball thing. So my dad played basketball. I played basketball. And in the middle of this basketball thing, my dad, the rough guy, is there. And there's a little missionary from this Baptist church who was just happened to be in town from Africa. His name was Bob Schindler. And Bob went out of his way to talk to my dad. Now, in any other circumstance, these two men would never connect. Bob is an a educated, world-traveling well put to do, clean cut, everything's going right guy. And my dad is the guy that he tries to stay away from. He goes out of his way to talk to my dad and not just talk to him about sports, but to share the gospel with my father. And as he shared the gospel with my dad, my dad responded to the gospel and said yes and prayed the prayer. They brought me over to the side, they shared it with me. I responded, said yes to the gospel. And the next week we both got baptized. So there was a seed planted but the problem with, with the gospel is the gospel is not a decision, it's a seed. That's why Jesus did the parable of the, of the sower. He said, the seed will be planted. Maybe it's on hard ground. Maybe the bird comes, snatches up. Maybe weeds choke it. It's a seed. And we never changed environments. So the seed that was planted within my heart, the environment never changed. It stayed in this environment of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Alcohol, the turmoil, the, the conversations, the abuse, all this. The seeds stayed in that environment, and that is not an environment where the seeds of God flourish in. The seeds of God will never flourish well in that environment. The seeds of God are designed to flourish within the house of God. It's like a greenhouse that protects that seed that can be pruned. Discipleship is this process of watering the seed pruning the weeds, giving sunlight to the seed so it can flourish. That's what discipleship is. And we never went back to church after that. So the seed was planted, but it wasn't taken care of. And so everything just kept piling back on. It was like the enemy said, hey, there's a seed planted. I don't want this seed to come up. And he started shoveling dirt with more abuse, more drugs, more alcohol, over and over and over again to try to pile up on this seed so that it would not produce the fruit that Jesus said here in John chapter 12. Touch your neighbor and say, he shovels dirt. God plants seeds, the enemy shovels dirt. He'll shovel dirt through shame. He'll shovel it through fear and anxiety and abuse. He shovels dirt on the things of God. And as he does, you have a choice to either let it settle or to break through. And so our family let it settle. And so for the next few years, life continued as it was before, like nothing ever happened. Until about 13, my parents got divorced. Now I'm 14 years old. I live on my own. I literally feed myself. I work. I play basketball. I travel across town on my bicycle. I'm raising myself. I got arrested for the first time when I was 14 years old for reckless endangerment with a deadly weapon. No one was there to show me or guide me or lead me. And at 14, I have a buddy I played basketball with. He said, hey, you should come to church with me. And I was like, church? Like, why would, I, why would I go to church? And I'm the rough guy. Like, I'm the kid no one wants around their other kids. He said, why don't you come to church with me? He says, there's girls there. <laughs> that is a really good reason for a 14-year-old boy. I said, really? He said, dude, there's girls everywhere. I said, what kind of girls? He said, every type of girl. I said, for real? He said, for real. I said, I'm there. I go, I'm just looking for the girls. The ratio is like three girls to every guy. I'm thinking, this dude is brilliant. (laughs) Like, why did I not meet you earlier in life? 
And I go, and I'm looking for girls. Now, I'm the kid no one else wants around their kid. So I have, I have a deep compassion for those kids that, that come into youth ministry, come into church, that may not be the best kid, but maybe God is working on just a little bit. And so here I am, I'm in this environment where it's like all the kids are the good kids. Their parents are Sunday school teachers, they're, they're professionals, they're business people, they're, they're deacons, they're elders in the church. And here I am, my dad's only been in the church one time by the time he got baptized. I've never really been in the church. I don't even know the right language. I still said cuss words. And they'd be like, sir, you can't say that. I'm like, that's, that, well, why? They said, that's a cuss word. I said, it's not one of the big ones. <laughs> and I remember going looking for girls and I found something completely different. I'm looking for girls and I found an environment where there was unconditional love and acceptance. And it amazed me that there's a place where people actually love people for who they were. Like, and it was amazing to me that here I, I'm the rough kid. I'm the outcast. I'm not accepted in my own home, but I'm accepted here. And what I realized was unconditional love and acceptance is the environment where every seed of God flourishes. Unconditional love and acceptance is the environment where hopes and dreams and purpose and joy and peace and love, they flourish in this environment of unconditional love and acceptance. If you want your children to flourish, you need to create an environment of unconditional love and acceptance. If you want your marriage to flourish, you have to create an environment of unconditional love and acceptance. If you want your employees to flourish at your job, you have to create an environment of unconditional love and acceptance. It is the environment where every seed God plants begins to flourish. Now remember, this is new to me. All these other kids, they've been in this their whole life. To them, this is, this is routine. Like, this is common to them. And I remember thinking, this is amazing. Like in worship, they would, they would stand there. Like back then in, in the 90s, there was like hand movements to every worship song, which is really awkward anyway. And I was like, this, why are they doing sign language? Like, I can hear. And they were doing the thing, or they would sit there and, and kind of sing the songs. I remember I'd be laid down on the carpet in front of the altar. And I'd just weep. I, I, I didn't really know the gospel, but I realized unconditional love is amazing. And I would weep, and I would weep, and I would weep. And I remember having this thought that these people don't even get it. Like, they don't even comprehend what is going on here. And it was like, uh, the, the bad kid is moving forward while all the other kids are kind of staying put. And so I started having these thoughts and these, these kind of wanderings in my mind that I always want to be a basketball coach. But I started having these wanderings like, maybe a basketball coach and a, and a pastor is kind of the same thing. Maybe one does for basketball what another one does for people in their spiritual life. And remember, I was thinking, didn't tell anybody because I didn't know how to express it. And one day I'm walking through the living room for Alicia Sharpton, who was actually a female, but she was the youth pastor at the time of this church. Amazing lady. And walked through her house. Her house, the first time I met her son, I was 14, a freshman. He got locked out of his house. His parents were out of town. I broke into his house and threw a party. I'm talking about a good old high school party where you had to make sure the furniture got put on the same divots on the carpet. Like the hole that broke the garage door to throw the party. Now I'm walking through her living room to go upstairs and I'm walking by she says Bobby has God called you to the ministry yet and I said excuse me he says God called you to the ministry yet and I said I, I don't I don't know what that means but I've been having this like thoughts and she's like that's what being called to the ministry See, I, I didn't even know what the word meant like for me my dad was an electrician my grandfather was an electrician I just figured I'd be an electrician at the church pastor he was a pastor his dad was a pastor both his kids were pastors I thought it was a family business I didn't know there was a calling attached to that I thought you know if your dad's a pastor you'd be a pastor and she says no this is what being called means and I said I, I think so and she says I believe so she's like I was praying God told me that and what I realized then and this is how pivotal this is God will bring people across your path that can see beneath your junk can see beneath the dirt of your life and can see the seed of potential inside of you. He'll bring people across the path that have a voice of destiny in your life, that can see what you can't even see, 
Many times we're so caught up in the drama of our lives, we can't see like the eternal purpose. And God will bring people across your path. They'll say, hey, I see it. I, I see that in you. And when the Bible talks about prophecy, that's one of the greatest uses of prophecy is to see something inside of somebody and then speak that to them. To encourage them by saying, look, I know that your life is rough. I know that your life feels bad. I know there's a lot of pain and abuse in your life. I know you got a rough exterior, but I see something deeper than just the exterior. And that deeper, I see a seed of destiny and purpose inside of you. And if you let it grow, I promise you it'll produce what God wants it to produce. She says, you need to tell the church. How do you do that? Next Sunday night, pastor says, hey, Bobby, I want to tell you something. I'm in front of a bunch of people. I have no idea who they are. I'm the kid that cusses. Now I'm the kid that's saying, hey, I'm going to be a preacher. I'm probably your preacher. <laughs> it was so bad. One of my buddies, the buddy who invited me to church, when I said I'm called to ministry, he said, if you're ever a preacher, I'll be your usher. <laughs> he still ain't here. <laughs> I stood up. I told him. I said, I feel like I'm called to be a preacher. And it's like the moment I announced that, it was like that seed that was planted when I was six years old kind of started trying to break through the surface just a little bit. Like there was a blade of grass that started to poke up like it's almost going to break through. But as soon as I made that announcement, it's like everything from hell came against me. It's amazing how people think, well, if I say yes to Jesus, everything's going to get better. No, many times it's going to get much worse. It's almost like the enemy said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We cannot let this seed break ground. He said, let's get some more dirt. Let's shovel some more shame on there. Let's shovel some fear on there. Let's shovel some anxiety on here. Let's shovel some religion on here. And Alicia Sharpton, the lady who saw that enemy, spoke that enemy. My daughter's named after her. Our oldest daughter, Alicia, is named after her for that reason. It's so pivotal in my life. And she was the youth pastor for 18 months to 24 months. And all of a sudden, the pastor came and met with the youth group. He said, hey, uh, we have a, a new youth pastor. He said, because Alicia, you know, she's been here, but women aren't supposed to be in ministry. And I was like, I'm a 16-year-old punk, right? Like, I'm still a little street. Like, I ain't that sanctified yet. I'm like, like, really? So were they supposed to be in the ministry the other 18 months she's been doing it? Like, so your doctrine... You can change it if it's not convenient. But if it's inconvenient, you can change it back. I remember thinking, like, this is what church is? This place of unconditional love is now shifting a little bit. I remember starting having questions about God, about the Bible, and I'd ask people, they said, uh-huh, you're not supposed to ask questions like that. Or our brains aren't made. You just got to believe God. And it's like, I have these questions, now I'm wrong for having questions. Now that which was unconditional acceptance, now there's conditions on it. The condition is don't ask questions like that. The, question, the conditions are don't act like that, don't do that. And I had this place where that seed was starting to push, and I was like, ah, let's just shovel some more dirt on it. Which then led me away from the church, away from the environment of unconditional love and acceptance, back into the same environment I had before. I'd raised myself, now I'm still running the streets. Now everything I dealt with before, I'm dealing with again. Arrested for the first time when I'm 14. Now I'm 17. I get arrested for a drive-by shooting at 17 years old. I think I got to do something with my life. I'm intelligent. I, I, I can do something. Let's go to college. I go to Tennessee Tech University. I get my schedule. I get my roommate. I go to the open house to get ready to go to school. Got my bags packed. They called out about 10 people out of the entire class. We go. It's the financial department. They said, sir... You have not paid anything yet. I didn't even know you really had to pay. Like no one in my family had ever been to college. They said, would you do your FAFSA? I said, I don't know FAFSA. Who is he? They said, it's a form you fill out. I said, I didn't know anything about it. They said, well, you got to fill it out to get financial aid. And if you get financial aid, you get this amount of money. I said, I don't know FAFSA, but I want to know him. He is loaded I said, well, how, what do I do? They said, you have to start paying immediately. Well, obviously, my parents didn't have the money to pay for it. I couldn't go to school and pay the full tuition right away each month. And so now I had this hope. It was almost like that seed. I'm trying to get that seed out. It's like the enemy says, no, 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 no. More dirt. So I go back home. I start doing the same, doing electrical work like my dad did, working at a factory at night, and partying, alcohol, drugs, everything. 
Until one day I had this, this amazing encounter that I thought was going to ruin my life. And I said, I have to get away. I said, I have to change. I just have to run away. I need a new start. I need a fresh beginning. I need something new. And I thought to myself, where can you get a fresh start at? I should probably go to the military, which is the dumbest thing ever to get a fresh start. So I said, you know what, my, my grandfather's in the Air Force, he's getting older, I can honor him by going to the Air Force. Fresh start, honor him, that's cool. So I go to the recruiter's office. If you've ever been to a military recruiter's office, it's usually Air Force, Army, Navy, Marine, they're all right next to each other. So the first time I go, the Air Force recruiter's not there. He's probably golfing as everybody makes fun of the Air Force. He's probably golfing or, you know, at the club, whatever he does. So I go to the Army, Army recruiter's office. He tells me all this stuff. You can be... Rambo, you can be this person, like you can be whatever you want to be in the army. Like I'm like, man, that's cool. Like fresh start, fresh start. Boom, I'm there. Go home. My sister, my stepsister just married an army guy. I call, he called me. He said, dude, did you talk to the army army recruiter? I said, yes. He said, he's a liar. <laughs> he said, what would he tell you? I told you. He said, he's a liar. He said, do not go back to him. I said, all right. So the next day I go in. The Air Force recruiter's there. Problem. I have to walk past the army recruiter's office. If you don't know how they work, they work on quotas. He needs me more than I need him. I walk past him. He comes out. He says, whoa, whoa, where are you going? I said, I'm, I'm going to the Air Force office. He said, no, 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 you talk to me first. I said, yeah, but you lied to me. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm not talking to my brother. He said, you lied about this, this, this. He said, I ain't messing with no liars. So now we're toe-to-toe in front of the Air Force office, which is just one big glass slate right there. And we are like almost fighting in the hallway. We get done, I go sit down in the Air Force recruiter's office and say, hey, I'd love to join the Air Force. He was like, what? I said, what do I need to do? He said, what do you need to do? I said, he said, when can you leave? I said, as soon as possible. I said, the sooner, the better. The sooner I can get out of here, the sooner I can start over. And he put me on this expedited track where I could leave any week. They called me on a Monday, I left on a Tuesday. I said, I just need to start over. And I'm thinking, I got it. I'm going to go, brand new start. It's going to be a new beginning. I go to boot camp, and what I realized was everything was the same. You know why? You can't run fast enough. You cannot run far enough to outrun who you are. Like, and I think we spend most of our lives trying to outrun ourselves. We're trying to outrun our shame, our past, our bad decisions. We keep trying to outrun ourselves, and you're running, but you're right there with yourself. I thought I'm going to run away. I'm going to be in Arizona. I can start new. I can be the good kid. I can be the good guy. I can be all these things. I can be all you can be in the Air Force, not the Army. And I get there, and the problem was I followed myself there. Everything now was 10 times worse now because I'm still independent, but now I have more money to do it. Now the alcohol, the drugs, everything's 10 times worse now. Legal drinking age on the base I'm at is 18 years old. I can legally drink. So now I'm drinking every single day. And I'm not talking about drinking a glass of wine. I'm talking about getting sloshed every single day. I got arrested the first time when I was 14, then again when I was 17. Six months into the military, I get arrested again. I tell people, everybody's always like, well, you know, I'm just around the wrong crowd. Sometimes you're the wrong crowd. Sometimes you're the common denominator. Like, you know, I'm, I'm intoxicated. This kind of fight breaks out in the club. We're outside the club. Like, I'm manning up with this guy. And again, I'm 18 years old, six foot three, 165 pounds, right? I'm not putting fear in too many people's eyes. And I remember I threw the hardest right punch I'd ever thrown in my life, which when you're drunk is probably more like this. And I missed. And I thought... I caught back, hit, hit the guy again. He falls down. Somebody grabs me. I try to swing off, swing at them. I didn't know it happened to be an MP, which stands for military police. So then I'm locked up in jail, in military jail. My drill sergeant has to get me on the next morning, Sunday morning at sunrise. I get in the car. He's been a cool guy for six months. He said, don't say a word. And I thought to myself, how much longer can this keep going? At this point, I'm a complete atheist. I'd have these questions. No one can answer the questions. 
I started finding some of the answers I wanted in other religions, in Islam and Buddhism and Judaism. I studied all these different religions. I'm starting to find pieces that I like. In Buddhism especially, I found pieces that I like that there's levels of heaven, which means somebody like a Billy Graham gets to skip a couple levels, but somebody that gets saved right before they die, they just go to level one. It's like Mario Brothers. Like you defeat your level, you move up. I like that. And what I realized, I started realizing I could bit and piece things, but then I started thinking, maybe there isn't a God at all. Maybe we're just, you know, science will catch up at some point, and when science catches up, we'll be able to explain everything we try to explain with God. Maybe, maybe religion is just a bad attempt to explain life. As time moved on, things get worse. I have no God, I have no morals. People would try to tell me, hey, if you keep doing this, you're going to hell. Problem, I don't believe in hell doesn't work hey the bible says you shouldn't do that problem i don't believe in the bible your arguments are not working and people would come i remember 9 11 happened we had all these people all of a sudden were new holy rollers because they thought the world was ending and they would stand by our barracks and yank the bible out and wave it at us problem i don't believe in that either and they would try to argue me to a place of decision now I'm an alcoholic. Every single day I'm drinking. I find courage when I drink. I find confidence when I drink. People that tell you you don't find good things out of drugs and alcohol are lying to you. I found confidence for a moment. The confidence my mom took out of me, I found when I was drunk. I felt confident. I felt courage. I felt like I was somebody. The problem with it, it was temporary. As soon as I was no longer drunk, I had a hangover, and now I felt like I couldn't do anything. One day I looked in the mirror, and I'm just completely wasted. I looked, and I said, you are becoming your mother. I mean, I was looking as clear as day, and I realized that which one generation does in moderation, the next one does in excess. What my parents were doing was bad, but I magnified it tremendously. And even though I had that moment, it didn't change anything. Went back to the same routine. With alcohol came the violence, with the violence came other stuff, then it became, I became very promiscuous sexually. And the reason I think that happened was because I was looking for the love of a woman that would love me. I don't think I really had it from my mom. I didn't have that affirmation from my mom. And so I was looking for a female love to make me feel good about myself. And so that actually became my drug of choice. And in those moments, I would feel appreciated. I would feel wanted. Like if they want me enough to give themselves to me, that's a big deal. And I felt like for a moment, like I'm somebody. Like my mom may not love me, but they love me. And it would fuel my ego and my self-esteem and my confidence. It would fuel me. But what I didn't realize is in Mark, Jesus said, when two come together, they become one flesh. That's not just marriage, that's, that's sex. When you have sex, you become one flesh, one soul. And what I didn't realize was every time I did that, I was giving a part of my soul to somebody else. I was giving part of my identity, part of my self-esteem, part of my confidence. I was giving it to somebody else, and now I was taking it from them. Until one day I woke up, and I'd given myself away so many times that I no longer knew who I was. I was broken, I was depraved, I was dark in my insides, I was poor in spirit, I was broken to the X level, to the X level. So much so, and I, and I think about it, like it's a shameful thing, even Paul said, sex is a sin against yourself. And it, it's shameful, it's shaming. And I thought, the enemy could never get you to drink a cup of shame by saying, hey, just drink this. Just, just drink this shame. Go get arrested for this. Go get a DUI for this. Go, go get humiliated with this. Just take it. So what he does, he gets us to take a sip and then another sip later on and maybe next week another little sip until at some point in life you realize you drank the whole cup. And I drank the whole cup. And it was like he just took that dirt on that seed. Shame. Here's some more guilt. Here's some more alcohol. That'll keep you numb enough just long enough to keep on going. So much so, even after I was saved, I'm in ministry. Like in my hometown, we are the fastest growing church in the assemblies of God. We go from zero to 1,200 in three years. 
Everyone, I grew up there. Everyone knew me because I grew up there. They knew me because of the church. Like, life is good. We have our kids. Our kids are healthy. We bought a new house. And I'm driving home from work one day. I stop at the mailbox, and I go through the mailbox, and you have junk mail, bills. You got four kids. It's like 120% bills, 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 bills. Everybody said, have kids. They said, it'll be fun. They said, you'll be broke. They didn't say. And I put that down. I got to the bottom. There's this letter in there. And the letter was written, some really awkward letters on the outside. Almost like one of those old serial killer letters from the old crime movies. It was written like block letters, like that's awkward. So I opened it up in the car and as I opened up, the whole inside is like that. The whole letter is formed like letters from different magazines. Like it's, I'm like, somebody's about to kill me. <laughs> like I'm about to die. Little did I know, that's what the letter was about to say. I'm about to die. I opened up the letter and it's from a female. She says, you probably don't remember me. So, but I found your address. I've been looking for you for years, and I work with a mortgage insurance company. And every couple of years, I, or every couple months, I look for your name, and your name came up because I guess you just bought a house. And she said, "I want you to know something." She said, "I just got married and had a baby, and through having a baby, there's a bunch of tests, and I found out I'm HIV positive, and you gave it to me." And I'm reading this letter, and I'm thinking, "God, like, why now?" Like now, it's like the enemy says, huh, you think you got it? Remember, I didn't know what to do. Like, I can't go tell Toy. Like, she can't live with this. And I'm starting thinking, what if I am HFA positive? What if I'm dying? What if I gave it to my wife? What if I gave it to my kids? What kind of man am I? I remember, what do you do? I can't go to the doctor in my hometown. Everybody knows me. Like half the doctor's office comes to our church. What I do? I drove to the next town over. I go to the health department, which was the same place my mom took me when we were little because we didn't have enough money to go to the doctor. And I walk in, I have all these flashbacks and this shame of going back to my childhood. Walk in, I tell them, hey, I need an HIV test. They said, we don't do that here. Like, what do you do then? They said, you have to go to your doctor's office. I said, that is not happening. So I find a random doctor's office, schedule an appointment, and I walk in, it's a, it's a professional place. I said, hey, I need an HIV test, which is just shame. Like, who, does, who has to go in and ask that question? I go and I give the blood work. They said it'll take 48 hours. I'm like, is there not a way to expedite this? For 48 hours. Like, I can't tell Toy. I can't tell the kids. I don't know what's happening. I eat dinner with my kids at night I, or in the evening. I don't know if they're going to die. I don't, I don't know what's, like, it's this chaos in my mind. Get the results. They call me, Mr. Gorley. We got your test results back. Just, just don't, if you've got to get somebody good or bad news like that, just cut to the chase. Like, hey, what do you think? Are you having a good day today? How's the weather? Just give me the, they said, your test results are negative. And part of me thought I should be celebrating, like, thank God. But the other part of me is like, why do I get to break free while this girl who wrote the letter has to deal with this her entire life? And it was almost like the devil said, here's some more guilt for you. And every day I pray, like, and I thank God, it's, it's an amazing grace that I get to break free of things I should not have broke free from. And so I'm living this life of just alcoholism and sex and, and me and Toy and me, which was the greatest gift ever, because she was like that voice that saw something in me that no one else could see. We get married, we have Alicia, she starts going to church, we're living with her parents in Ohio, and here I am, I'm working at a factory, I'm just doing me. Like, I'm, I'm not being promiscuous or anything like that, but I, I'm, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in this. I'm, I'm darkened. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. But I can't tell anybody because I don't know how to express it. Little did I know, she's getting frustrated living in a house with somebody who's not really married to her. I'm married to myself. I love myself. I don't love her. I'm not giving a good example for my daughter. And I go to work one night, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Go to work. It's so crazy. I go to work as soon as I clock in. Clock in, I'm walking through the machine I work at in this factory in Cleveland, Ohio. And as I'm walking, I see a vision of me preaching in the only church I'd ever been into, which is that Baptist church, that environment of unconditional love and acceptance. And I thought, that's crazy. I, I don't believe in God. Like, why would I see myself preaching? Like, I don't, I'm not going to preach something I don't believe. And I keep, like, literally, eight-hour shift, that's all I could see. Like, I'm trying to change my thoughts, like, think about baseball, think about basketball, think about the kids, think about this, and that's all I can see. And then I started hearing the term, if you've never heard the voice of God, you, you won't, you'll probably think I'm crazy. I've never heard God just speak audibly from heaven, saying, this is God. 
But I heard the term messianic prophecy, messianic prophecy, messianic prophecy over and over and over again for eight hours. Vision of me preaching and hearing that term over and over and over again. And I never heard or read that term before in my life. Eight hours of that, like going crazy. I go home. Everybody's in bed. I go to the basement. That's where the computer was. It was a dial-up modem. So I get on, turn on the modem, and it's like, you know, some of y'all are too young to know this, but 56K modem is like, it's louder than your sound system. And I'm about to Google messianic prophecy. I put it in. It takes five minutes for the page to load on a dial-up modem, and I start looking at it. And I realize there's over 300 prophecies of the Messiah, which is who Jesus is, of where he would live, when he would live, how he would live, what his ministry would look like, what he would do, how he would die, every, like 300 prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled them. Uh, I like to explain it. If I told you tomorrow it's gonna rain and it rains, you'd be like, it's pretty good, pretty good weather, man. But I said, hey, but Tuesday, it's gonna snow. It's about 29 degrees, gonna snow, kids are gonna be out of school. You'd be like, oh no, then it snows, you'd be like, hmm, that's pretty good. But Wednesday, it's going to be 120 degrees in a drought. And you wake up, and it's 120 degrees in a drought. You're like, that's pretty good. Hey, but Thursday, there's going to be a hurricane, and it's going to hit the shoals. And there's a hurricane. You're like, wow, he's getting pretty good. If I did that 300 days in a row, you would say, huh, it must not be a coincidence. When those prophecies foretold Jesus 300 times in a row, there's no coincidence. Some of them are like this. They're so specific. Psalms 41, 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted me, lifted his heel against me. So there, it's David prophesying about Judas betraying him. And then here's how it's fulfilled in Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. Right after he ate bread with him. Like, it's too crazy. Then this one is so specific. Zechariah 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Everybody say 30. 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. Everybody say potter. To the potter, the lordly price at which I priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. That's the prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, and it said, what are you willing to give me? This is Judas. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him, what? 30 pieces of silver. Then Judas, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, then Judas, the betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I mean, he threw them back into the temple saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field. Like that's as specific as it gets. One, one statistician did it this way. He's a researcher in Texas. He said, they, they broke down the probability of these 300 prophecies. And they took eight of those prophecies, just eight, so not even the full 300, just eight of them. And they wanted to figure out the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. So this amazing amount of mathematical research, and here's the number they came out with. One to the, in, to the 10 to the 17th power. So that's a one in the 10 followed by 17 zeros, chance of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. Yet Jesus fulfilled all 300 precisely. He said, the only way you can explain that, if I was to take a hat and put nine black tickets and one white ticket in here and had you blindfolded and reach into the hat, you'd have a one in 10 chance of pulling out the right ticket. You have a one in 10 to the 17th power chances of pulling out the ticket if there's that many tickets in there. So he equates it to this. If you were to take a silver dollar and you paint it red on one side and you take one, a 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, that's a lot of money, probably enough to pay for my college. 
take that many and you put them across the state of Texas and you mix that red one in with it, first of all, it would cover the state of Texas from border to border to border to border, two feet deep in silver dollars. That's how many that is. You take one red one, you put it in there, and you can mix it all up somehow. You took one person, you blindfolded them, put them right smack in the middle of Texas, spun them around, said, you can go as far as you want to. You only get one chance to pick a coin. His chances would be one to the 10 to the 17th power. Yet Jesus fulfilled all 300. We were laying there on the carpet again. It's amazing how these moments in my life have to do with carpet. I laid down and I'm just crying and weeping because I've been looking for evidence that God was real and God was like, let me show you. I'm gonna point you back to my word through these prophecies. I'm gonna use my spirit to give you a vision. He brought his word and his spirit together and I thought to myself, I knew God. Like I had an experience with God, but I turned my back on him and I walked completely in the other direction. So much so I would try to talk other people out of their faith. And so I'm going the opposite direction, running as far away as I can. Other people don't want to be a part of me. But here's God saying, I want you. I want you. I'm trying to get your attention. I want you. And it broke me to this place. I'm weeping on the carpet thinking, God has given me a second chance. Like God loves me enough to give a second chance. It's like that seed that had been pushed in the ground at six years old, had been stomped on by the world had been covered up with dirt, all of a sudden was breaking forth in power. Not because I tried to break through, but because God pushed the dirt back and said, come out, come out, come out. And I was so excited, I'm weeping. I go upstairs and I wake Toy up. I remember the sunlight was coming through the blinds and I'm waking her up and I said, babe, babe, listen, I need to tell you something. She said, what? I know she probably thought I was crazy or probably thought I was drunk. And I said, I've been wrong about Jesus. I said, I've been wrong about Jesus. I said, he is who he says he is. And she starts weeping. And she tells me, Look at this, this is huge. She said, last night, the same night God chose to reveal himself to me, said, last night, me and Alicia Sharpton, that voice of destiny, those two voices of destiny in my life, were praying for you all night long on the phone. John Wesley says, God does nothing but by prayer. And by prayer, he does everything. Their prayers, inviting God to move into my free will, to bring his word and his spirit together, his spirit for revelation, his word to bring confirmation, to bring me to a place where I was awakened. Because what I didn't realize, and all that searching, all that looking, what I didn't realize was I was dead. I was in a tomb. Like Jesus' tomb was in a rock. Our tombs are in the ground. I was covered in dirt. That seed was covered in dirt, which was a tomb for me. I was spiritually dead, but I didn't know it. Like I was spiritually dead, and I didn't know it. The problem with with stench, I smelt like death. Like I smelt like death. Everyone around me could tell that I was hopeless and broken and dying. I couldn't smell it. Because once you get used to a smell, you no longer smell it anymore. So people will tell you, hey, you smell like death, but I smell normal to me. And it wasn't until God woke me up that I realized I am dead. And he said, that's perfect. Because once you die, once a seed falls to the ground and dies, then it will bear much fruit. And it was like God was saying, listen, I know you're in the dirt. Now come out come out. I resurrected so you could be resurrected. Now it's time for you to come out of your grave and experience your new life. Not a a changed life, not an adapted life, not a fixed up life, not a religious life, a new life. He said, I want to transform you from a dead seed to a growing bush. Jesus left the linen behind in the grave because he wasn't carrying it where he was going. You have to leave your shame, your past, your reputation behind because that's not part of the new you. Oh, people, man, I had a guy, I was talking about a high school reunion with somebody earlier. I don't go to high school reunions and everybody in my class gets mad. And I tell them, that's not who I am anymore. Why would I go have a reunion for somebody I used to be? I'd rather celebrate the new me than celebrate the old me because once people start bringing it up, I'm like, that's not who I am anymore. That's still in the grave, I'm new. I don't have the shame, I don't have the guilt, I don't have the fear, I don't have the anxiety. See, we all have graves. Some of us just actually awaken from them. 
We don't call them graves. We don't call them tombs. We call them caves. We call them isolation. We call them depression. We call them anxiety. We call them shame. We call them fear. We call them guilt. We just call them different names, but it's still a grave. Anything that prevents you from settling in the light of the gospel and your destiny according to the gospel is a grave. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. I'm going to ask two questions. I'm going to ask everyone in the room responds to one of these two questions. Just real quick. Two questions. I'm going to ask everyone responds to one of the two questions. First question is this. At some point today when I was sharing, maybe you connected with my story. Maybe God started speaking to you and, and kind of saying things like, maybe it's time for you to have a fresh start. Maybe it's time for you to quit trying to fix up the old you and start allowing the new you to come through the dirt. The fact that Jesus resurrected from the grave gives us hope that we'll all resurrect from our graves. And that starts today. It doesn't start with you trying to do better and trying to fix up anything. It starts with you saying, God, I'm going to let this me die so you can give me a new me. If that's you, so you know, God has been speaking to me today, and I want this to be the new day for me. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up right where you are real quick. All over the room, thank you. Anybody else? If you just keep them up for a minute. And ushers, if you can go ahead and start putting those, they're going to place a little a, a gift in your hand as you do that. I'm going to pray as they do so. Father, we love you. And we thank you that your blood is still as powerful now as it was when it washed down Calvary. We thank you that the power of your blood doesn't fix up our lives. It gives us new life. And I thank you for every hand that is raised in here, Father, confessing that they have to let their old life die to have a new life in you. And Father, I pray that you awaken them spiritually with your word and your spirit. Renew their minds as you've renewed their spirits. Father, let them walk out from this day forward, not trying to earn your love, but to show forth that they've, that they've walking out trying to prove that you've loved them to the people around them. Let them make an impact as you've made an impact in them. And so Father, I pray as they leave here, they leave on purpose, they leave on mission to show your glory to everyone they encounter. In Jesus' name, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. As I was speaking, and I was talking about Toya praying for me, that I believe all true evangelism starts in prayer. And there's people in your life that are hopeless, that are broken, that are addicted, maybe family, maybe spouse, maybe friends, maybe coworkers, that you said, you know what, God needs to move in their life. God will move, but he moves by invitation. And we invite him to move into free will through prayer. And right now, as I'm about to pray, I want you to start whispering the name of whoever it is God has placed on your heart today. Whether it's a friend, whether it's a family, whoever it may be, just start whispering the name. You don't have to say it, just whisper their name. And we're gonna invite that God will move in their lives on, on their behalf. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you are a moving God. We thank you that you're an active God. And Father, we thank you that you are a God who moves in the lives of people who need you the most. And Father, right now, as we whisper these names all across this room, I pray, Father, that we're, as we're whispering, we're asking you, we're inviting you into their free will. We're inviting you to move into their lives, Father, through comfort, through conviction, through other people, through revelation, Father, that you're moving in their lives to bring hope, to bring them back to your house, to point them in the direction of your grace and your love. And so, Father, as we do so, I pray we start seeing those people saved, transformed and renewed and on mission for you father all over this place in every family and every house and every neighborhood and we thank you in jesus name and all god's people said amen i mean it's always about to share with you some some news about chapel haiti so chapel haiti is our campus in haiti and i believe that when god makes an impact in you you should want to make an impact in other people and so she's going to share with how you can do that today let me give you 30 seconds of background um, when I was 14 years old, the Lord planted a seed in me. Uh, shortly after I was introduced to Christ, the very first thing I did was I went on a mission trip. Um, my youth pastor who was discipling me, because I was also from a home that wasn't following the Lord, uh, he took me to Haiti. And the Lord, while I was in Haiti, he gave me a dream. And that dream laid dormant for 22 years. Uh, and I, I, for a while, stopped believing God for it. But God is incredible, and I, I went to a conference last fall, and Darlene Check was there, and she spoke on dreams, and one of the things she said was, you know, to write it down, that you'll never get 
to where God's taking you if you don't write it down. So I came home and I wrote it down and I emailed it to a handful of people and I said, I need you to keep me accountable to this. I had a five-year plan of what Chapel Haiti would look like, when it would happen. We went to Haiti in December and I've reconnected with someone who was with me on my very first trip to Haiti. She's an older lady, she's in her 80s, and she'd been paying the budget for this small school, and she couldn't do it anymore. And we started talking and, you know, sharing our hearts, and she said, you know what, the Lord told me to give it to you. And I thought, what in the world is happening? I had this five-year plan, and I get home, and things start moving really, 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 really quickly. And I asked the Lord, what what are you doing? And he said, I had to do it like that, because you needed to know it was me and not like you. I needed to protect you from yourself. And... I started walking this out and Bobby and I started praying and talking with the elders and praying with the elders and in January the Lord gave us a very clear vision of who was to be involved and what we were to do and we went to Haiti and and we visited uh, Doko our village for the very first time and we met the pastor and we met the kids and we spent some time and so so sad to say that these kids have very 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 little some of them go days and days without a meal because they can't afford food. Uh, many of them have single parents because their fathers have died. The life expectancy in Haiti is very, very low. The difference between a young Haitian child who is born into a home and receives an education and doesn't receive an education basically means either they're going to be successful or they're going to die before their time. So. Our kids at Chapel Haiti right now have been in a very difficult situation. The situation is this. Our school goes from kindergarten to sixth grade. At sixth grade, they make a decision. A lot of these kids in sixth grade are 12 years old. They have to leave their home in their village, leave their parents and leave their family, and go to another village where they can further their education in secondary school or they quit school and start working. Most of them choose the second option. Uh, The Lord has really put in our heart that that's not okay. We will have our kids graduate from high school and go on to university so that they can be leaders in their nation. So we need your help. How can you help? We have a wall of kids outside in the lobby. Uh, They have different faces, different names, different stories. These are real kids. These are our babies. You have the option, you can choose to sponsor a child completely, and that's $60 a month to completely sponsor a child. That's to provide them with education, food, clothing, uniforms, books, everything that they need, sustaining the school, everything that they need to survive. And we're going to add a grade. So this year, we'll have, for the very first time ever in the history of the school, they will have seventh grade. Our sixth graders will not leave the village. They'll move up and they'll get to further their education. Every year we will add a grade until they graduate from their own village, from their own school that we're supporting and we're sponsoring. Uh, So because we're doing that, we also have these cards. These cards are preschool enrollee cards. When we start school in August over in Haiti, we're gonna have a whole new group of kids come in that are four years old, five years old, six years old, in their very, very first year of school, and they also need sponsors. So when you go to the wall, if you see a a card that says preschool enrollee, fill out that envelope and go ahead and sponsor that child, and then on the back end in August, you'll receive a picture of your child. Here with me, I have Ariantine St. Fleur. She's in the third grade, and her dad's passed away. Her mom is a farmer. She plants in rainy season, and they have plentiful. She walks down to market, and she sells. But for the rest of the year, when it's not the rainy season, and the ground is hard, and the ground is dry, they really, really struggle to have food and sustenance. She doesn't have a roof on her home. She has a very, very difficult situation. Who in this room would say, I want to be her sponsor? I want to fully sponsor for $60 a month this little girl and give her a life, give her an education. You got it. So as we go out here, you're going to have two options. You can fully sponsor a child at $60 a month if you say, I want to be involved, but I can't financially be that involved. You have another option. Um, there's, this can be broken down into two, an education sponsor 
That's $30 a month to say, I'm going to pay for their school. I'm going to pay for their books. I'm going to pay the te- like, I'm going to do all the things to make sure that this child gets through school from now until 13th grade because school in Haiti goes to year 13. That's an option. The other is a daily bread sponsor. Your daily bread sponsor says, I'm going to pay for their food. I'm going to pay for their clothes. I'm going to pay for everything that they need to survive in life. When those come together, that's a full sponsorship. So you have that option as well. In Haiti, kids who are in a situation like this call their sponsors their godparents. And we want you to have a relationship with your godchild. So if you're sponsoring a kid, you're going to get their information. They're going to write you letters. You have their birth date on this card. We ask you, think of your kids. Buy them a birthday present. Send it to them. Buy them a Christmas present. We'll take it to them. Visit your child. You have the opportunity to visit them when we go on missions and when we go to Haiti. But this is our opportunity, and this is how God's asking this house to serve him and change the nation of Haiti. So as you leave, you can stop by that booth. 100% of all that donation money for those sponsorships go directly to the kids. There's no overhead, no administration costs, anything like that. And these are our kids. So we have a relationship with these kids for years and years and years and years through the church. And we do trips. We take our trips in Haiti now. We'll go all to this village. So we'll see the same people over and over again. So you actually get to see your kids that you sponsor. And you can make a difference in their lives by giving them a chance to be educated but also nourished. Like, to be honest, mal, mal, being malnourished, no education. It's, it's crazy how bad it is, but you can make an impact in their lives. But if you would stand to your feet as we get ready to leave today, I want to tell you thank you for being here with us at chapel next week. We got a lot of good stuff on baptism service. If you rededicated your life today and you have not followed the Lord in water baptism, May 5th is that date. A lot of good stuff going on. Next Sunday after service, we're actually going to walk through the Dream Center. So you can see it before, and you can see it after in the fall when we build everything out. But I pray you have a great rest of the Sunday. Happy Easter. See you next week.